Mark chapter 2, verse 18, and it starts on page 837 of your pew Bible. It's kind of the the broad text we're looking at today as we continue tracking with uh, Jesus all the way from the beginning of the gospel. Remember, this is the proclamation that he has come as God's kingdom, his reign, right? And that this brings about forgiveness of sins ultimately which is going to bring about repentance and he's he's shot onto the scene with power and authority the unclean spirits uh, uh, the demons they are aware of him the corruption of the world flees at his presence and he also has taught us very clearly that while things like leprosy are a problem the bigger issue is the need for the forgiveness of sins So remember last week, they bring this paralytic to Jesus, right? And rather than heal him, he says, I forgive you. And this starts a series of questions. The first one happens right away, and we saw it last week. We'll touch on it here in a moment. But what happens is those enemies of Jesus, who are men of seared conscience, they they don't believe that he's the Messiah, they began finding all the places he's doing it wrong. And it starts to build this conflict. So now he's not only in conflict with these unclean spirits, but in fact, the leadership, the religious people of the day, uh, they they don't like anything that he's doing, even as the crowds continue to grow. So uh, let's start uh, with chapter 2, verse 18, though. That's our kind of official start text today. Um, It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So question. That's the third question, though. So I want you to see them all together. Back up to 2.16. Just a couple verses ahead, and you'll see the scribes and Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? that's, That's the The second question, that first question was all the way back in 2 verse 6, where after he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6 says, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? Right. So we go from questioning in their hearts, why does he do this, to questioning directly, why does he eat with them, to questioning directly, why does he not not eat the way we do. <laughs> kind of an interesting thing, fasting. Okay, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on fasting here. Uh, and then if you flip the page, uh, chapter 2, verse 24, the third question, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So you have, you have four questions all at Jesus coming out of their disbelief that he has the power to forgive sins. And what I want you to hear is how, how divergent his answers are from their questions. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because I'm a doctor, he says, right? Or, next question, 218. Why don't your disciples fast? Because I'm the answer to all your fasting, he says. We'll come back to that thought. Uh, But then again, with the question in 2.24, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? 
His answer is, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So rather than give what they expect, kind of explanations for how he's really doing it the way they think it's right, he tells them every step of the way they're wrong. Like their question's wrong. They don't even see what's going on. They're so blind to everything. So again, we're in the middle of that series of questions today, picking up with the third question on fasting. And the only thing I want to kind of, again, pull out of last week's question about food fellowship, who are you willing to eat with, is to see the connection between food and religion goes both directions in the Hebrew mind. So first, who you eat with is a religious issue to the Jew. And that you don't eat sometimes on purpose as religion is part of Judaism by the time Jesus shows up as well. And that's what we're going to really dive into thick and heavy here uh, with chapter 218 and following the question of fasting and what place does it have in the Old Testament? What place does it have in the New Testament? What place does it have in the Christian life? Because there are Christians out there who are pretty insistent that if you're not fasting, you're not really a Christian, just like there are Christians out there who are pretty insistent that if you don't worship on Saturday, you're not really a Christian. If you do worship on Sunday, you're, you're wrong. And, now, and we can debate, are the Seventh-day Adventist Christians? We can debate that, actually. But they present themselves to the world as a Christian body. And they say, we are the Seventh-day, Sabbath-day Adventists waiting for Jesus' return. And they, in the 1800s, came out of all of the churches like ours to fix this one issue, which is that we have to worship on Saturday or we're not really the church. Again, this is the Sabbath idea being brought from the Old Testament into the New. And yet here, Mark is going to address all of this as one big package in which it effectively says that if you think that Jesus came to make you be a Jew, then you don't know who Jesus is or what he's here for at all. He came to save the Jews from themselves and us too. And so it's, it's much bigger than even Sinai, the Sinai covenant, could contain it. And we're going to get this language of old wine and new wineskins here. This is the point. Jesus is new. Jesus is doing something different. He's not like David. He's not like Isaiah. He's not like Moses. He's like them, but no, he's not. He's something new. He's the son of God, right? All right, so the question about fasting, then. Let's just dig into this little little bit of nuisance again. I mean, there are people who are, are just very pressing on this. It, it's not that fasting's bad. It's not that fasting's good. It's sort of like, well, what are you doing? All right, so verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. First thing we're told. And well, of course they were, because all rabbis of this era taught that fasting was a expected practice of the Jew. If you didn't in some way practice fasting, then you were unfaithful. It'd be kind of like, well, a, more than like giving offerings at church, more than like coming to church. I mean, it was like essentials, like being baptized, almost. And so this is a big part of their life. And we'll talk a little more about where that comes from here in a moment. But they go to Jesus then and they notice his disciples aren't doing this. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus, why aren't you doing this thing called fasting? 
Now, all right, tangent on fasting. To we American people, I think for the most part, fasting spiritually is just kind of crazy talk for a lot of people, right? There's fasting stuff all over. You go to Barnes & Noble, you can find books on fasting. It's all about health, losing weight, killing cancer, stuff like that. Right. So, so fasting does exist in our modern world, but it's usually about dieting in some way, shape, or form. And you just have to purge your mind of that to see that the ancient world could care less about whether you lost weight, gained weight. That was not what this was about, even a little tiny bit. For the ancient world, fasting was always, always, always religious. Always. Ancient pagans as well, not, not just uh, ancient Jews. Uh, the word that say Homer right, or Plato would have been familiar with, which the New Testament also used, is called nestuo. You don't have to write down nestuo if you don't want to. I just want you to remember what it means. We translate it fasting, but it means to be empty on purpose. To be empty on purpose with religious conviction almost always. So I'm going to empty myself so that my God will do something. That's kind of the meaning of the word at its root. And again, ancient religions outside of Judaism and Christianity definitely practiced this. And they did it because they believed that by emptying themselves, they would be able to entice the gods they worship to do more. Usually something like give a vision. And, and so part of... Uh, enticing the spirits of various pagan mystery religions to enter into you as they say witch doctor or a prophet right so you would have an experiential vision and hear the spirit speak to you you would fast to the point of starvation because did you know this if you fast to the point of starvation guess what happens to the human body you got visions, you hallucinate. That's exactly right. So as part of their seeking visions from God, they would starve themselves to see the vision. Then sometimes they'd come along and they'd add one of those maybe controlled substances of our modern day on the height of their fast. And I mean, have you ever gone home after a hard day work and before you eat dinner, you start sipping that beer? You know how different that feels, right? So if you fasted for six days as the Oracle of Delphi, and then they come along and they give you this little concoction, you're going to absolutely have your mind blown. You're going to think you're talking to God. That's, in fact, what they thought. <laughs> that's what they did, right? So that's one side of it. The other side of it is this. More reserved ancient religions, the philosophers, the Stoics, uh, uh, individuals who were trying to be virtuous based upon reason, they didn't disbelieve that there were things like demons out there. And they did believe, in fact, that one of the ways that demons, ghosts, wicked spirits, one of the ways they would gain power over you as a man was to entice you to gluttony. So if they could entice you to gluttony, they would weaken you and they would steal from you all of your power. And so in order to not fall prey to sloth and gluttony, ancient pagan men, non-Christians, they would fast for days at a time to prove, I don't need food. I'm not a slave to my belly. No way. Right? Again, this is the ancient world's view of fasting as a religious practice, right? Now, in the Old Testament, this comes in, but it's never quite as important as in the ancient world elsewhere. Why do I say that? Well, you see fasting happening in the Old Testament, 
but it is almost never commanded or instructed. It just, just happens. So you see Moses fasting for 40 days with around before the vision in which he gives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Or he gets the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. You see him fasting. What does it mean, though? Is he trying to win God's approval, or is there something else going on here? Perhaps the clearest example of a time when somebody is fasting in the Old Testament and does get an answer to prayer from God is Daniel. And later in his book, uh, he is praying and fasting, and God sends him, I believe it's Gabriel, to give him all sorts of information about what's going to happen next. And his prophecy is, is laid out there. Although, it does say, uh, not when Gabriel talks, he comes and says, I was sent to you. He doesn't say, because you fasted. He says, from the moment you prayed, I was sent. Uh, but, but nonetheless, the fasting's there as part of it. Okay? So this idea that fasting goes with prayer, that wanting God to hear you, you can maybe get God's attention by doing something that hurts. He's going to notice, right? That's there amongst the Hebrews. And, and it comes out in a couple other ways. Um, there is a commanded fast on and around the Day of Atonement. You remember there's these three major festivals of the ancient Hebrew calendar. One of them is the Day of Atonement and is a commanded fast. And the penalty, if the whole community does not fast on this day, is that you will be under God's wrath, which means he's going to send physical enemies with swords to hurt you. Right, so that's one, you got to do it or else wrath comes. Uh, two, you can't work on this day of fasting either. It's like a Sabbath in the middle of the week, day of atonement. Uh, it's actually more than a day. It's four days long, which means the fast was probably during daylight hours rather than all through four days. Um, and, but here's the thing, just like that Sabbath law we heard before, if you don't fast on the day of atonement, they kill you. So when fasting shows up, it's not sort of like a do this, it's good for you kind of thing, right? It's more like on this day, you all do it to recognize you don't deserve to be here or else you won't be here. Now, out of this, right, arises or continues a common practice amongst Hebrew people from David to Solomon all the way down the line where they do have fasting as part of their tradition. But again, see, this is not proscribed. This is not what they have to do. And in this, then, it's very common, along with, say, the vows that are given to men to make in, say, Leviticus and Numbers. You know, I'm going to go to this city. I'm going to try to make money there. First, I'll go to the temple, and I'll make a vow to God that 25% of whatever I make is going to go back to him. If he blesses me at this city, I'll offer the right sacrifices. And because I'm a Hebrew, I know this is going to work because this is who my God is. This is what he set up, right? And in order to doubly show that my sacrifice is what I want God to do, I will vow to not eat food for an entire day, the day of the sacrifices or something like that. So that the one day vow fast became a normal thing in Hebrew life long before Jesus comes around, even to the point where, at a certain point, the prophets start telling the people to stop. Stop fasting. You're doing it wrong. You think you're earning something. 
You're just bold and evil and trying to trick God. And if you want to look that up, you can find it. Jeremiah 14, verse 12, uh, Isaiah 58, verse 1 and following. Uh, the prophets basically say, stop it. Just stop. Everything you're doing, your prayers, your worship, your fasting, stop. You're making it worse. Why? Because you've begun to believe that fasting is something God requires you to do or he won't love you. And that if you do it, it doesn't matter what else you do, you're going to get what you want. You turned it into a self-righteous work. Huh? So, by the time, in spite of the prophets, by the time that Jesus comes around, like I mentioned earlier, first century rabbinic Judaism, uh, if you're not vowing and fasting on some regular basis, I mean, you just really aren't faithful. You just aren't a Christian, in their view, right? You aren't a Pharisee, not really. And you might say you are. Now, then Jesus shows up. And uh, Jesus is just going to do this completely different. Uh, the, the, the resource I looked at, if you in, online especially, if you want to know, uh, there's this massive series called uh, The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament uh, by a guy named Kittle and a number of others. It, it dates back to the pre-World War II, I believe. You know, 1920s scholarship is very, very good. And uh, what they say is that Jesus' view of fasting is unique to world history, including Christianity. That is to say, what Jesus says about fasting is not what Christianity starts doing. We start doing something completely different, a lot more like Judaism. And to test this theory, all you got to do is look at what Jesus actually says and does with regards to fasting. You'll find it's very different than what the early church gets into fights about in the first century. And I'll, I'll mention that here in a moment. Yeah. But now, Fasting in the New Testament, Jesus' position. I mentioned the new wineskins already, and I want to really emphasize this, yeah? Jesus' position is that he is new. Nothing like him has been before. Everything that will be that lasts forever is going to come from him, right? Not from before. And so since that is a greater thing than Moses, how could the Sinai covenant and all of its demands hold what he brings? With that said, guess what he does right away? Just like Moses, he fasts for 40 days before he goes and confronts the devil. Big difference though. Moses and Daniel, they're fasting and then they get a vision. Just like the ancient pagans thought would work. Yeah, Jesus gets his vision at the baptism that he has. Sky breaks open, Father speaks. Then he goes and fasts. It's backwards. Completely backwards. And that's kind of the point. Jesus upends everything. He turns it upside down. We, know, we must believe that he did keep the Day of Atonement. So you got to believe that when Jesus went to the, the festivals at Jerusalem, he would fast as he was required. But, but nothing more than that can be said of him in terms of his own fasting. Um, other than that, he never does forbid it. He never says, don't fast. It's bad for you. Right? Nothing like that. But for Jesus, fasting is this. It is a legitimate symbol of repentance. That's what the Old Testament makes it all the way through. And Jesus believes that. Fasting is a legitimate symbol of your inner repentance. But because that is an act of sorrow, it must sit in tension with the experience of salvation. If the point of your fasting is to get God to answer your prayers. And Jesus is standing right in front of you, 
as the God-man come to save the world, what other prayers are you looking to have answered? Why would you ever fast if the prayer's already been answered? And that's Jesus' answer to this whole thing. Is, I'm right here. All your fasting, all these years, was just asking for me to come. So why would I tell you to do more of it now that I've showed up? Maybe I've got something better for you. And here's, an, again, an amazing thing. On the night when he's betrayed, he doesn't say fast. He says, take and eat. So no matter how much you might want to practice fasting as a Christian, and again, there's a place for this out there in discipline. No matter how much you may want to practice fasting as a Christian, you can't do it all Sunday morning long. Not if you come to this church. Yeah, because you have to take and eat the body of Christ. You have to take and drink the blood of Christ. And so do you see then how Jesus and fasting, they just kind of, it's just not his thing. They don't really line up. It doesn't mean uh, that there's no place for fasting, but it does mean Christianity has transcended or surpassed the need for fasting. That there is no requirement of it in your Christian life. Um, and that you should expect much more from God just because you ask than because you did something to get it, right? It's like, I pray, Jesus, will you do this for me? And it doesn't happen. I think, oh, well, if I fast, he'll do it for me. Well, what's up with that thinking? If, Jesus, will you do this for me? No. Well, maybe I can change his mind. Well, wait, wait, wait. He's almighty in God, right? But he kind of knows what I need, right? So if he said no, well, then why am I trying to strong arm him by making some action like I'm going to suffer and then he'll like that more or something? Or do you see how this just doesn't fit with, I'm a son of God and he hears my every voice. They don't line up quite the same way. All right, now, not done yet. Okay, so that's Jesus. Rest of the New Testament, fasting is barely mentioned. It does get mentioned in Acts 13 and 14 at the Christian community at Antioch. Maybe you remember it's the first place they're called Christians. Uh, it's where Paul and Barnabas are really active. There's a lot of Gentiles, a lot of non-Jews that are there. And we know that before both of Paul's journeys that he's sent from Antioch on, uh, they pray and they fast and at one point, the Spirit actually says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for this work as part of that response to fast. So here we see that fast vision thing, right? Just like Daniel, just like Moses. But that's the only time in the New Testament it happens. Just at that place, just at that time. It's not everywhere they go. It's not everything that happens. It's just right there. Yeah. And then after this, all your epistles, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 1 John, all of these epistles, not a single one of them says, uh, you know, love your neighbor, submit to the king, wives, you know, submit to your husbands, and everyone be sure to fast. It doesn't say that. It's not there at all. And I want to have you look at one of them because, I mean, there's a number of places you could look. Romans 14, Colossians 2, Hebrews 13. Keep your finger in Mark. Go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I'll give you a page number when I get there too. Uh, we're going to be on page 1012, 1013 actually. And I want you to think about everything I just said. Fasting is a symbol of repentance that the entire ancient world knows and that all Jews practiced. James, this is the guy who kept Moses better than any other Christian. He's going to talk to us about repenting. And of all the places that you would think he'd say, and by the way, fast, well, again, he won't say it, but I want you to see how it should be here. 
It should tell us to fast if we're supposed to, and it doesn't. Uh, Verses 7 and following, he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, you could fast while doing all of that. But it doesn't say to. And this is where the New Testament has no mandate on fasting. It's just not there. And anybody who wants to tell you otherwise is making stuff up and binding your conscience with laws That, remember Colossians, how it said, have the appearance of wisdom, but cannot stop the indulgence of the flesh. Sadly, uh, you find in the early church, within the first century, Christians are not doing what the New Testament says, kind of letting fasting be whatever you want it to be. They are involved in arguments about not only should you fast, but since you have to fast, Make sure you don't fast on Monday and Wednesday, because that's when the Jews fast. You fast on Tuesday and Friday. That's the only time to really fast, and that's how you know you're a real Christian. That argument's off the rails pretty fast, right? Like, really fast. (laughs) And the Didache, as a document, which that's from, is a pretty good document. It's a nice early church confession of the faith. There's good stuff in it. But that they're arguing about something the New Testament doesn't even talk about. Not really, right? And again, uh, when Jesus then is confronted with the question, let's go ahead and and jump to uh, chapter two again, right? He's asked, why do you disciples not fast? Jesus says to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? I mentioned this earlier. If all of the point of all of our repentance is to ask God to save us, then Jesus is already the answer to that prayer. What more do you want us to do? What more do you want God to give than he's already given? And this is doubly true for Christ at this moment, standing there with them. You could apply this in a sense to your moment where you take the Lord's Supper. Like, why do we sing the song of Simeon? Lord, now let your your servant depart in peace according to your word after we eat the Lord's Supper. What is Simeon's prayer? It's a prayer that he might die now. You know that, right? Let your servant depart in peace. I can die now. We sing that after we eat the Lord's Supper. Why? Because the bridegroom has come, right? How could we ever fast again, in a sense? He has filled us with his glory. He does say, verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast in that day. Uh, You could take that to mean that after the ascension of Jesus Christ, now we're supposed to fast. I think you're reading into the text a little bit. Could mean that. It definitely is true that Christians do fast. I think it has a little more to do with the fact that like maybe Good Friday afternoon, maybe, you know, Easter Saturday, but he's still in the tomb Saturday morning. Maybe Peter's like not out having a steak, right? Like maybe he's kind of scared and upset. And just can't eat. What would that be? That'd be like a real fast, right? I'm so upset about what I did, betraying Jesus, I can't eat now. That's a true fast. 
The days are coming when that will happen. There'll be days where God puts that pressure on you. Make no mistake. But it's not a tenet of Christianity that you must try to do this. And thus, 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. And uh, the new from the old and the worst tear is made. That's parable number one. Parable number two, same point. Verse 22, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Both parables about how something old can't contain something that's so new that it's completely different than what the old is. And the point of it being that the old covenant though it foreshadows, points to, and is fulfilled by Jesus, cannot contain Jesus, cannot contain his New Testament. And as a result, much of it is abrogated by his death and resurrection as a completion. And on the night he's betrayed, he institutes a new covenant, right? New wine in new wineskins, right out of the Passover meal, but not the Passover meal at all, and never again, right? but the Lord's Supper at this point. So new wineskins, new patch, right, on new cloth. Jesus is emphasizing that he is something different than everything else that has come before. And so all of these questionings of him, how does he have this right? Why does he do this thing? All of that is misplaced and darkness and unbelief. And now, again, what happens next is uh, he's going to prove that, you know, substantially and physically. Uh, Turn the page to Mark chapter 2, verse 23, where we got our our primary story. One Sabbath, uh, he was going through the grain fields. I'm sorry, I skipped ahead a little bit here. Uh, Forgive me. We just did the fasting. We have the second question. We're going to go through this one a little faster. We won't spend as much time on the Sabbath. We have... The last question in the series, who do you eat with? When do you not eat? That is fast. And um, this one, what about the Sabbath? That's going to set up the confrontation in the synagogue. So one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Uh, Without going into too much detail here, it's important to know that the laws they're referring to are not Old Testament laws. They're rabbinic Jewish laws built on top of the Old Testament laws, in theory, to protect the Old Testament laws, but eventually replacing the meaning of those Old Testament laws. Again, the spirit, not the letter here. So they ask him, why are you doing what you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath, on the day of rest? Verse 25, his answer, Old Testament story. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So as his enemies confront him to accuse him, they don't like how he's not teaching what they think should be taught. They notice that he's teaching on the pinnacle day of the week, 
the Sabbath doesn't line up with the way they see it. Remember, the penalty for breaking the Sabbath is death, and they take this all deathly seriously, so they confront him about it. They ask him why he's not doing it, and he says, well, David didn't have to do everything exactly the way it was supposed to, which is not the answer they were expecting at all. But why is David special? Is David just any old guy? The story, David's fleeing from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, but David all he's been anointed to be the next king right and so he asks the priest is there any food and the priest takes food that he's not supposed to eat and he comes up with a way that it's okay to eat it jesus point in bringing up this story of david is to say that what matters is who we're talking about and so what matters is not what day is it but who am i jesus right and so i am right lord of the sabbath he says I'm the one who has the power to make this day what it is. I created it in the first place. Again, we could go into detail on the Sabbath idea as deeply as I just did on the fasting idea. We're not going to. What I want you to take from it, though, is this. The idea of the Sabbath as God created it is rest. It's good. It's a gift. And anyone who tells you you got to do Sabbath like this to get the goods misses the point. The point's the day, the day on which the Bible is open. And for us Christians, this has gone far past the synagogue on Saturday, reading about a Messiah who will come. We made on the day of the Lord, recognizing not only that he has come, but that he slept on the Sabbath in the grave and now has risen again, anointing a new day, an eighth day the first day of the forever week, right? Uh, The day of resurrection that in America we call Sunday, but once upon a time it was called the Lord's Day for a reason, right? Because it has surpassed the Sabbath as a day of rest. And that rest, particularly being your conscience, your knowledge that your sins are forgiven. And of course, when you take the time off of work to come here and sit and receive the supper of Jesus, you are proclaiming his death until he comes. You are acknowledging that this world isn't all that it appears to be. And you're recognizing that even if you gave all of your time to trying to make it all work, it wouldn't be as powerful as just asking God. And so here you are, Christian, resting in Jesus. Yeah, it's beautiful. Having taught this, he entered the synagogue. That's where I meant to be a moment ago. Here we are, chapter 3, verse 1. He entered the synagogue. Back where he was, he fought a demon last time we saw him in the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. I don't know how you would imagine a withered hand. I imagine missing fingers and it's all crumpled up, right? Born that way, mangled, I don't know. He's there with a withered hand. And and one thing you just kind of have to recognize about that kind of injury. I mean, blindness fits in this category too. Like I can buy a ticket to go to a stadium somewhere and watch a guy in a nice suit with a nice rock band behind him, walk around the stage talking about Jesus and telling everybody to come down and he'll heal you. And then he'll do it. He'll, he'll heal you right in front of everybody else. Crutches get thrown away, you know, the depression leaves forever and all this kind of stuff. But, but what they won't do is they won't heal a man born blind. And they're not going to heal a withered hand in front of you. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why I'll cast out the demon. You can fall down, shake on the ground, ee-haw, put the money in the plate. As opposed to, no, just go to the hospital. Just start selling people up with your words. Oh, you can't do that. Why? 
Because that, that is what Jesus is going to do, <laughs> right? Uh, this isn't sort of the miracle like I prayed and the doctors fixed me. Uh, this is no, 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 something the doctors couldn't do. Still today couldn't do. Prosthetics, sure, but like, no. You're not going to unstretch a withered hand and grow the fingers back. You know? But there he is. And everyone kind of knows that this is a bit of a test. Verse 2, they watched Jesus. Uh, this is not a happy statement. No, this is, they're evil. They're watching Jesus to see whether he will heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. It's pure hate. Pure hate. Listening not for the truth, but to see if they can find a lie so that they can trip him up. Now, if he was just a good man, that would be wrong. He's the son of God. It makes it doubly wrong. Gotta love how Jesus doesn't leave it. I mean, what would I do? If I knew there was a group of people that wanted to pick a fight with me over a topic, I'd probably just kind of leave. I don't want to get in this fight. What's he do? Straight to it. Come here. Guy, come here. People, come here. Says to the man, come here. Verse 4, he says to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And, and the whole day can be wrapped up in this. God, God is asking this question of you right now. Like, did I save you so you can do good? Or did I save you so you can work really hard and prove something? Huh? Did I save you to make it all about how you got to get better to prove yourself to me? Or did I save you because I'm going to prove myself to you as your God? Right? Why did he create the Sabbath for rest? Why did he come to save us into the eternal rest of the resurrection? Because that's what he wants to do. It's give you rest. So the issue is not, can I do this? Can I do that? But what is good? And why would you not do what's good with all that's in you? And indeed, the Pharisees answer, because uh, you, Jesus, are in the way. (laughs) They think he's bad. They're silent at this point. He asked that question. They stay silent. You see the cowardice there. Verse 5, he looked around at them with anger. Remember how I said in Mark, Jesus is very human. You get these human elements of him. Here he is. He's, he's mad. He's fuming at them. Looks at anger and he's grieved. So he's got the heat and he's got the pity. At the same time, he's grieved at their hardness of heart. He just wants them to be free. He just wants them to believe. He's there to save them. But they're so insistent on being on their own that they're rejecting him. And that, I mean, just bothers him. He doesn't like it. He's zealous. Yeah. So he says to the man, stretch out your hand. There it is. And Mark barely gives time to the miracle. Next sentence is going to change the topic. (laughs) He stretched out his hand. And then the Pharisees, that's the focal point, the enemies. What do they do? They go out immediately. And hold counsel with the Herodians. I'll tell you, Pharisees and Herodians, these, these, are, these are Republicans and Democrats. I mean, these are not friends. Not friends. He holds counsel with, they hold counsel with the Herodians. Don't miss it. How to destroy him. It's chapter three. Story just started. Matthew and Luke, they don't get mad till way later. John's a different thing, like half the book's the, the last week. But, but here again, chapter 3, already he's on their nerves to the level where they want him gone. He withdraws, verse 7. 
with the disciples to the sea. So he goes north into Galilee. Yeah, A great crowd follows him. This list of places is like everywhere. People from everywhere. Uh, from Galilee, from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. People from everywhere. Massive crowds. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. You perhaps remember that story of the woman who had a blood flow for 17 years, something like that. And she says, if I can get close to Jesus and touch him, then I'll be healed, right? Jesus is on the way to deal with the synagogue leaders uh, or a centurion's daughter or something like that. And she gets in close and she touches him and the crowd's all pressing around, right? And he says, who touched me? And his disciples are like, you're in a crowd, dude. What's going on? He's like, no, 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 no. no somebody touched me. He turns around. There she is, right? She's healed. Your faith has healed you. That's a single story. This text implies that was happening all the time. Like people just crushing into Jesus, like breaking through. You know, you see the people jump on the, the stadium field and they run around with the cops trying to grab them, right? right? Uh, so they're breaking through. I'm going to get to Jesus, dive and touch him. I'm healed, right? The, guys, can you make a boat? Get a boat, put it over there. I'm going to get up there because I'm kind of tired of getting attacked. <laughs> the humanity of Jesus. He's, he's really among us and it's, and it's a lot to deal with. We're a bit misunderstanding we're a bit pushy and demanding even right but then verse 11 ugh. and whenever the unclean spirits saw him they fell down before him and cried out you are the son of god and he strictly ordered them not to make him known so you know he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom and casting out demons the story continues to be a direct assault on the evil one, on the strong man who has bound our race under his demonic power. And Jesus is not going to back down until he has completed the appointed time on the cross. Along the way, he's going to emphasize how he is fulfilling all the prototypes of old. Whatever the fasting was, he has been the answer to it. Sabbath, you want a day of rest? The day of rest is trusting that you are forgiven in Jesus Christ. To the level that, Lutherans, don't miss this. In your small catechism, on the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Dr. Luther is very, very firm to say what I believe, which is that it's not about a single day, but that every single day that the word of God comes into your life to make it holy, that is the eternal day of rest, breaking out of God's presence into the right now of you. There's no day off from doing good. There's no day off from following Jesus. You don't retire or take a vacation from your religion. The word of God has entered into your mind and your heart to make every day a day in which you are immortal now. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this Sabbath, Holy Day, Lord's Day, Sunday is but a pit stop in your week to make sure you don't forget. To give you encouragement and bonding with others who are of the same shape as you are in their hearts. Because they are also being fellowshaped by this holy resurrected God according to his meal of bread and wine and, and baptized into the ark of his holy church sailing through time. So you come from where you were with your private time and the word of God or your family table prayers. You come here to be bound together, to be built up, 
filled with the spirit according to the text and sent right back out to do it all again, but not to leave it behind. It's going to go with you. The word's with you. So remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Every day is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. And that's especially true for you. So now you don't, you don't got to worry about, should I fast? Should I not fast? Lent is coming. Look, if you want to demonstrate in some way your convictions about anything, go ahead and do it. I, I, I mentioned that, I don't want to forget to give you this before we close here. We're almost at the end. I mean, there is the moment in Mark chapter 9, we're going to get there. We, we actually heard it a couple weeks ago where Jesus goes and he casts out this demon from a boy and the disciples couldn't do it. Remember that? And they ask him why. And he says, this kind only comes out by prayer. And if you got a King James, it says, and fasting. Well, why is that there? And why is it not there in other ancient Greek texts of the same text? It's a good question because it fits the same idea that indeed God does listen to fasting somehow. So let me suggest to you this idea. If this is too much for the end of a long sermon, I apologize. But, but let me suggest to you this idea. That fasting isn't about religion. Fasting is about creation. It's about the first article. Which is why, as a Christian, if you do fast, it has an impact on the world around you. It changes the way you see things. It changes the way you hear things. And that's going to impact everybody else. And that God designed it that way on purpose. And you should feel free to use it as a discipline anytime you want to enhance your prayer life. That's a world away from saying the reason the church in America is falling apart is because we're not fasting enough. Which I've, I've heard that said, right? Completely wrong. Completely wrong. Um, if anything, we're, we're failing because we're not reading the scriptures enough. So the natural philosophy behind this, the idea that fasting is something you can use. It's a symbol of repentance. But all of your fasting is already answered in the body of Jesus Christ. And don't forget... You can't start your fast till after the Lord's Supper. In the name of Jesus.